Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear H. Allen Scott. One of the great things about cancer is it allows you to be honest with people, you know, and really kind of live in the moment and share what you're feeling. And so like, you know, for example, sir, I would love to sit on your face. That and more. But first, folks, the next two Risk Live shows that you can catch in person, on stage, or via live stream are coming up. The Risk Los Angeles show is back on April 12th at 7 p.m. Pacific time. It'll be happening at the Hotel Cafe. Then on April 21st, Risk is back in New York City at Caveat on the Lower East Side in Manhattan at 9.30 p.m. Eastern. And in May... We're in Portland, Oregon on May 6th, and Seattle, Washington on May 7th. You can also pitch us. There's still time to pitch us if you want to be in the Portland or Seattle shows. Tickets are always at risk-show.com tour, whether for in-person shows or the live streams. And if you live in Seattle or Portland, you can pitch us at risk-show.com submissions. Is your child struggling with a specific subject or need help with homework? Are they asking questions that you're not sure you can fully answer? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed. This program will improve your kids' grades. Studies done in almost every state in the country. The kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. And it doesn't have to eat up all your time. One subscription gets you everything for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. So don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Now here's the show. Hello, kids. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison. This is KB Shakedown behind me now. And we're calling this week's episode Change of Plans. Three stories about people who found themselves at a fork in the road they might not have um, expected to be on. It's funny, we have been doing a lot of shuffling, uh, you know, musical chairs of, oh, let's put this story on this episode and then switch this story to be on that episode. And in the process, we created this episode and I didn't even realize it's three men. <laughs> I, I usually make a point not to, you know, to have more variety than that. But I will say there's a real variety of life experience on this episode. How's everyone doing lately? I, you know, we're in this strange period 
where we've just been through really, really tough times. And a lot of us are super anxious about the future for various reasons. And for someone like me who, who struggles with anxiety and depression, even in ordinary times, it's confusing to keep up with unpredictable feelings. Um, I hope the show continues to be helpful for people through all of this. You know, just to hear other people sharing about their life experiences, just being honest about it all is reassuring to me. And I hope it continues to be so for you too. Maybe I should record another um, Patreon check-in from myself about uh, things that have been on my mind lately. But for now, let's get to the stories. In a little bit, we're going to hear from one of our very favorite storytellers, Mark Redmond. But before that, someone who is doing their first appearance on the show. This was recorded live at Caveat in New York City a couple of months ago. This is Devin Walker. He is a writer for Big Mouth on Netflix. And you can find him at Internet Devin on Twitter and Instagram. Here's Devin now with a story we call Puka Shell Energy. I'm here to tell a story about a time when I was in college. I was 19 years old, and uh, the mission was that we were gonna go to a beer pong tournament, all right? The beer pong tournament was about a half hour outside of my college town. It was in downtown Austin, Texas, and my friend John was like, let's go. He was like, we're gonna go to the beer pong tournament. It's only $20 to get in. It's time to party, all right? And John was a good party friend, but he was like kind of a bad person, and so... <laughs> That's the person who was leading me into this expedition and 19-year-old me. I need to describe 19-year-old me first, I guess. 19-year-old me was like this version of me, but like 50 pounds lighter and with a thousand percent more hope. Does that make sense to you? Like there was just a glimmer in my eyes that is really not there if you look deeply. Like I really thought, I was like, I can do all my dreams. It's all going to come true. Like that's the version of me that existed then. And that version of me trusted guys like John. And I was like, let's do it. Let's go to a beer pong tournament with John. But... I was 19, so, you know, I needed an ID, all right? So I asked a couple of friends. I landed on an ID of this guy that I kind of knew. His name was Jeremy Davis, all right? And Jeremy Davis didn't have anything in common with me other than that he was just another black dude. That was pretty much it. He was like six to seven inches shorter than me. And also, in his ID picture, he was wearing a puka shell necklace. And here's, you guys don't know me, but I hope you know that I'm not a puka shell necklace type of a type of an individual. I hope you know that not even when it was cool did I ever put that on my body. I want y'all to know that. That's just never who I've been. It just wasn't me. But you know what? That's, that's what it came down to. I paid Jeremy for the ID and I was like, all right, it's time to go. We're headed downtown. We're going to do it. All right, we're going to this beer pong tournament. So we go to the beer pong tournament. We get there. I hand my ID to the guy. All right, and that's a big moment. This man doesn't look like me in any way. You know, the guy on my ID, he's six to seven inches shorter than me. All the guys to do is math, and he could figure it out fast. But I hand him my ID, he looks at the ID, he looks at me, he looks at the ID, and he looks at me, and he's like, hey, come on in, brother. <laughs> 
come on in, which was like, it, I had two emotions in that moment. One of the emotions was like, fuck yeah, like I got in, like my fake made it happen for me. And then my second emotion was like, damn, I got puka shell energy. I got, I got puka shell energy. He saw the shells on that man's neck and he was like, yeah, that seems right for you. And that's, whoo, that's, you know, that's devastating. I look like an extra on the OC. That's not who I want to be. That's not who I want to be. Just the one black guy at the party. That's not who I ever sought out to be in my life. You know, but here we are. So we get in there and I start drinking at this beer pong tournament. And the thing about it was it was all you can drink beer. It was the worst beer you could possibly imagine. But I was 19 years old. So I was drinking in that like pre 21 year old way. I was drinking like a child drinks, which is like drinking like you're never going to see alcohol again for the rest of your life. That's how I was drinking. I was drinking like a monster. It was really it was really a lot. And we drank and we drank, and we drank. We lost early in the tournament. but We kept drinking. John was like, hey, man, let's go to another spot. I was like, OK, go to another spot. I'm drinking a blue drink. That's. <laughs> I like the Joe's reaction. Was like, oh, it was blue. Ah, oh, it was blue. That's a problem. Yeah, it's a problem that it's that color. I go there. I'm drinking a blue drink. I'm hanging out, and then it's starting to get fuzzy at this point. All right, it's starting to get fuzzy. One of the last uh, memories that I have in this particular bar is that I'm like surrounded by a group of like Mexican mothers. Uh, th like that detail doesn't matter, but also it like really does because it's, you could tell their energy was like, they all worked at like a middle school and they were like, this is our night. This is our night. We got this Thursday. This is our Thursday to fucking do it. This is when it's gonna happen and it's gonna happen. We're gonna dance around this boy while a Big Sean song plays. This was, Big Sean was hot at the time. That's how you know it was a bad time in our country's history, you know? Big Sean was a hot rapper. That song, Ass with Two Dollar Signs, was big. That's, yeah, that was happening. It was a bad time in society. It wasn't right. And so the, one of the last memories I have is like dancing in a circle with these moms and I'm really getting it and Big Sean's playing, you know, and I get kind of tired of dancing in the circle. I'm like, I gotta go. These women probably gotta go home. You know, the babysitter's probably getting sleepy. It's late. And I just, in my drunken stupor, I just leave the bar completely. And I go out onto the sidewalk. I don't know if any of y'all have been to Austin, but like the main sidewalk is like this big packed, like crazy area called Sixth Street. And I went out onto Sixth Street and I just kind of like laid on the pavement with my whole body. <laughs> you know, that's how much hope I had in my heart. <laughs> I had so much hope that I was like, I can lay down and nothing bad will happen for sure. And I laid there for a little bit, and while I was down there, a cop showed up, and he was like, hey man, you can't lay here, which, totally reasonable, you know? <laughs> reasonable thing, you know? Sometimes the cops be on some bullshit. That time, I was like, you know what? He's right, he's right. I probably shouldn't have been laying there on the street. And I was like, hey man, yeah, yeah, no, I'm, about, I'm about to get up. I'm, I'm about to get up. Yeah, 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 no, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do it. I'm gonna get up for sure. And then he was like, all right, cool. And then he like walked away, and I laid right back down immediately. <laughs> All right, and then he came back and he was like, hey man, like for real, like don't do this. You like can't, so like stop. And I was like, oh, like, <laughs> bro, for sure, for sure. Like I'm for real about to get up like right now. I'm doing it. And he was like, all right, bet. And then he walked away and then you know what I did? I put my body right back on the pavement. Uh, and then I kind of blacked out. Yeah, it kind of all gets dark from that point on. Uh, but I do remember that I woke up and I was, uh, you guessed it, in jail. <laughs> Fully in jail. And the first memory that I have when I got to jail uh, was the cops just repeating this name. I remember them being like, they were calling somebody to like come take a mugshot. 
And I remember they kept like over and over and over again, they kept being like, Davis, Davis, it's time to come take your mugshot. Davis, let's go, Davis. And I remember thinking to myself being like, man, Davis need to hurry up. Davis, Davis about to be in jail for a while. <laughs> Davis out here breaking the rules. He's not doing jail right. He don't understand that he needs to get up when they say to get up or else he'll keep him in jail longer. Uh, and then they said Davis a couple more times. And then I was just like, oh, I'm Davis. <laughs> I'm Davis. I'm Davis. I got puka shell energy inside of the jail at this point. I got arrested under a different man's ID. That's what happened. I got arrested under an entirely different man's identification. It was a bad situation. But I, I went there, I took my mugshot. They gave me one phone call. I called my best friend. I was like, hey man, like, I'm gonna call you later. Like, come pick me up. He's like, all right, cool. Then I go back and I sit down. I'm in full, like, I'm in jail clothes and like jail Crocs. And it was like super cold. And I was just like, just sitting there like shivering, trying to look like I knew what was going on. Uh, and what ended up happening was like they had us in this like big holding area and the two guys that came in after I came to were just these like big dudes who could tell like knew the situation in jail. You know what I'm saying? Like I was like my eyes were darting around trying to take the whole environment in. These guys were very much like, oh, we know what's going to happen later. We've been here before. Like that was their energy. All right. And here's the thing that I heard these two dudes say. I heard one of them be like, hey, we know who snitched. And when we get out, we're going to kill her. And I was like, oh, they put me in the wrong jail. They put, me in the, they put me in the wrong space. I'm just sort of in the college kid who was drinking in a weird way space. Like that's where I need to be. They kind of got me with the real killers and that's not really my environment. You know, I got too much hope in my spirit for this. So they actually, they should probably move me to a new jail. I was like, hey man, can you put me in a different? And they're like, nah, we don't, we don't do that kind of thing. And you know what they did do is they were like, hey, uh, we're actually gonna put everybody into cells, so we're gonna go ahead and group y'all up, and we're gonna put y'all into groups, into cells, and guess who's in my group? The young killers, that's right. That's right, it's me with the hope in my eyes. It's the young killers with murder in their hearts. It's a homeless man just kind of living his life, and then there's another college kid, all right? I'm sitting in there, nervous. I don't know what the rules are, but I do know I'm gonna have to pee soon. I knew that, I knew that with my whole heart and my spirit. I was like, I'm gonna have to pee soon, but what if it's against the jail rules to pull your penis out in front of everybody? What if that means something negative? I had to have all these thoughts, you know? I was like, these guys probably know, but maybe I don't wanna ask them questions. They got a lot of frustration built up in their body. Maybe I don't wanna run that kind of thing by them. And so, what I ended up doing was I kind of wait as long as I possibly can, and then I end up peeing in front of everybody, because it's just one toilet just for everybody, just for the community. Sure. <laughs> Thank you for that little bit of applause. Yeah, uh, but I did it, and the guys didn't seem to be that mad at me. Uh, and so I was like, okay, maybe I'll be fine. Maybe it'll be okay. So we sit in there for the rest of the night, basically, and then they let us out. And when they let us out, eventually they like start calling people to like leave because they just wanted people to like sober up who had got too fucked up like me. And the night ends and at the next morning, they basically call me and they're like, Davis? And I'm like, oh, I know who that is now. Yeah. No, I'm very familiar with who Davis is at this point. So I'm actually going to go ahead and hop on out there. So I go out there and they're like, hey, you got to sign your papers and call your friend. And so I called my friend. He was like waiting outside to pick me up. I'm like signing my papers, I'm signing my papers, I'm signing my papers. And uh, then truly once I'd signed like the fifth thing that I was supposed to sign, 
I realize I've just been signing under my own name the entire time because that's the only name that I've ever had in my life. I've, this is my first day being Jeremy Davis is new to me. And so after signing my name like six times, I was like, well, it's too late to go back now. And I handed the paperwork over to the person and they were just like, hey, what's going on with this? And I was like, nothing. I actually got to go. And then I sprinted out of jail. And that's the story of the one night that I ever spent in jail and how I made it out. Y'all, thank you so much. Now make that motherfucker hammer sound like I'm Davis. I got Puka Shell energy inside of the jail at this point. In the fall of 1978, I was a senior in college. I went to Villanova University right outside of Philadelphia. I was a business major and I was near the top of my class. I had almost a 4.0 and I am convinced I'm going to get a job when I graduate, probably on Wall Street with a big corporation. In fact, I'm even interviewing with corporations. And that September, early in the school year, for some reason, I picked up a copy of the local paper, Philadelphia Inquirer. I don't know why, I rarely read that paper, but I picked it up this time. And the cover story is about a young man, originally from Philadelphia, who was in Guatemala. And there had been a terrible earthquake in Guatemala, and he's down there helping to rebuild the country. And now he's walking all the way from Guatemala to Philadelphia to raise money for his work. And I read that article and thought, man, that's like incredible. That's thousands of miles to walk. Couple of weeks later, it's the end of October, and I played rugby for Villanova, and we always played Georgetown down in Washington, D.C., the last weekend in October. So we played on a Saturday, we lost, we partied all night long on M Street, where all the bars were. And then the plan was always we gathered Sunday morning in front of this statue in front of the university. So I'm sitting there waiting for my teammates to show up. I'm hungover and I see a van and the van has all these little kids by it and there's balloons and it looks like it's some kind of a walk or a run. And there's a young man there and he's got like jogging shorts on. And for some reason, he wanders over to us and asks us who we are. So we said, oh, we played for Villanova Rugby. We played Georgetown yesterday. And he starts to tease us. He says, oh, I'm a Georgetown grad. I played on the rugby team for Georgetown. And all of a sudden it clicks for me. This is the guy. This is the guy I'd been reading about. His name was Edward Fisher. And he now has made it all the way to Washington, D.C. So we said goodbye. We drove up to school. And now a couple of weeks later, I, uh, I always went to Mass. There was a 6 p.m. Mass on Sunday, and I would always go. 
So the Mass begins when it comes time for the priest to give the homily. The priest says, we have a special speaker today. We have this man, Edward Fisher, who's walked up here from Guatemala. So I'm like, what? again, this is this, this man. So he starts off and he shows pictures. He shows slides of really the devastation in Guatemala and the terrible conditions down there. And then he starts talking about the work that he's doing. He said something along the lines of, when I look out at you kids, I see myself a couple of years ago and I had everything, you know, in front of me. And today I have very little money. I don't have worldly success, but I'm so happy doing what I'm doing to help these people down in Guatemala. And I can't wait to get back down there to help them to rebuild their country. I don't know why, but I was absolutely inspired by what he said. And it wasn't like I was the kind of student who did volunteer work or who was involved in social justice issues. I played on the rugby team, which is about as opposite of that as you could get. And I was at college to get my education, to get my business courses in and launch my career on Wall Street. That's what I was there for college. But this man, he just startled me. And maybe it was his authenticity, his honesty. He wasn't up there selling anything. He wasn't up there to proclaim how wonderful he was. It was really the genuineness of his intention. It just stopped me in my tracks. And it was a turning point. I felt like he was speaking to me. And when Mass ended, everybody started to file out to go to the library, and I felt like standing up and saying, wait a minute, where are you all going? Didn't you hear what this man said? How can we just all go about our lives, you know, and pick up here and leave here? And eventually, I'm the only one left in the chapel. I'm just standing there. And I left and got went to the library too, started studying my accounting and my business courses. But it really influenced me so much that I, I really did like a 180 degree turn. I turned down all the corporate job offers and I signed up to join the Peace Corps. And my friends were stunned. My family was stunned. This was just totally out of character for me. So when I got accepted to the Peace Corps, the fellow I interviewed with said, hey, we're in about 90 different countries Do you have any preference? You know, we're in the Philippines, we're in Guam. Where do you want to go? And I said, send me anywhere you want. I have no preference at all. So a couple of weeks later, I get a letter in the mail from the Peace Corps, and they're sending me to Guatemala. The same country, right? Couldn't believe it. So I graduate from college. One week later, I am on an airplane down to Guatemala, and I am psyched. This is a two-year commitment, and I see myself as kind of a version of this Edward Fisher guy, you know, who I had heard speak a few months earlier. And I'm going down there to one of the poorest countries in the hemisphere, and I'm going to make a difference. I don't know exactly what my job down there is going to be, but I'm going to make a difference. I see myself as following in his footsteps. So I get down there, and... Reality hit me. It hit me fast. First, I got sick, okay? There was 45 of us down there, and they didn't boil the water for some meal they served us, 
And within two days, we're all running to the bathroom, all of us, night and day. I was living with a family, a single mother with a little boy and a grandmother. And all night long, I'm running to this outhouse that had chickens in it in their backyard. And then they tell us I'm going to Spanish school. It's going to be three months. And they inform us that, you know, after the three months, we're going to send you one by one to all these different parts of the country. And it will be months before you see another Peace Corps volunteer. And I thought, I don't want that. I'm like this really social person. I'm an extrovert. I love being with people. I love talking to people. And now I'm going to be stuck in the mountains somewhere, all alone, sick. So almost immediately, within days, I began to think this was a big mistake. So I'll never forget, I'm in this Spanish class, and the teacher is holding up a bottle. And she's saying the word in botella, 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 botella. And I just stood up and she started to laugh. She probably figured, oh, he's running to the bathroom again, like everybody else. And I went past the bathroom and I went into the administrative office and there was a woman there. She was like the assistant director for the Peace Corps. I didn't even know her or meet her, but she seemed nice. And I just went up to her and I said, can I talk to you? So she said, yeah, let's go for a walk. So we walked for an hour or two, and it just all came out of me. You know, I'm like, I don't know what I'm doing here. I thought this was a good idea. I miss my girlfriend. I miss the United States. I miss my rugby friends. I don't want to be stuck out in the mountains alone. And she turned to me after like two hours and said, it sounds like you want to go home. And I said, I think I want to go home. And sure enough, I did. I was on a plane two days later. I was just so embarrassed, you know? I was so humiliated. I felt like a total failure. Here I was, I was going to go away for two years, and I'm back like 10 days later. I just wanted to hide in my parents' basement and stay there for two years and then pop out and say to everyone, okay, I'm back. I'm back from the base Corps. And all those jobs that I've been offered, all the jobs were gone. So I bought some book that listed all corporations and I just started writing letters to these corporations. And kind of miraculously, by the end of September, I had a job on Madison Avenue. And I didn't even tell them that I'd been in Guatemala. What am I going to say? Oh, he's in Guatemala for a week. So I just left that out. But I landed this great job. It was at an even higher salary than a lot of the jobs I had turned down months earlier. So in my mind, it was like the Peace Corps never even happened. You know, it was just like a 10-day mistake. And I'm thinking, who was I kidding after all? I'm not like this guy, Edward Fisher. I'm supposed to be on the corporate track, make a lot of money. That was always my destiny. This is going to be great. You know, I'm back on track in my life. And it was great. I eventually moved into New York City. I had a studio apartment between Park Avenue and Lexington Avenue, 62nd Street. It had a little balcony with a barbecue. I had all my friends over. I'm going to the Hamptons on weekends. I'm playing rugby. It's like being back in college, but this time we actually had money. 
so it was better. So for the first year or so, it worked. The whole thing worked. But gradually, I had to admit, I still wasn't happy. Something was off. I should have been happy. I should have been satisfied, but I wasn't. For one thing, I found the work so dull. It was just crunching numbers all day long. It was boring as hell. We would all go to this one bar in the Upper East Side, the Sugar Mill it was called, on East 79th Street. I don't even know if it's there anymore, but that was the place to go. All my college friends were there, and I remember being there one night, drinking a beer, everybody's laughing, everybody's having fun, and I'm just sitting there sipping my beer thinking, is this it, you know? I'm supposed to be enjoying this, but I'm not. I feel out of place, I feel empty inside, and I feel like there's something wrong with me for feeling this way. Something is off. Where is my life going? So a friend told me about this place called Covenant House. Covenant House was a shelter for homeless teenagers in Times Square. Times Square then was rough. In 1981, Rolling Stone magazine called it the sleaziest block in America, and it was. Today, it's like Disney, Hard Rock Cafe. It was not like that in 1981. It was the center of prostitution, the porn industry. It was violent, weapons, and that's where homeless kids were. That's where homeless kids hung out, and that's why Covenant House was there. And they were looking for volunteers, people to go there at night, hand out snacks, play basketball with the kids in the gym, that kind of thing. So I thought, all right, I'll do that. I'll do that one night a week. Rather than go to the sugar mill one night a week, I'll go to the Covenant House and I can volunteer. And I had nothing in common with these kids, nothing. They were all African-American and Hispanic kids from the most poverty-stricken, dangerous neighborhoods of New York City, filled with domestic violence, weapons, drug addiction. I had never had any exposure to this population in my life. So at first I felt completely out of place completely out of my league. But I kept going back, probably out of guilt at first. I would go one night a week, every Tuesday night. And then week after week, month after month, I really started to get into it. I looked forward to going to it. And I was even pretty good at it. I remember meeting a young man. He was a runaway from New Jersey. And I counseled him and I talked to him about going back home. And I started to think after a couple months, maybe I'm not Ed Fisher, right? Maybe my path is not to serve the poor in Guatemala. Maybe that wasn't for me, but maybe this is. Maybe helping homeless teenagers right here in the United States, maybe this is me. A couple of weeks later, I was at a meeting at my corporation and I'm in this management training program. There's about 10 of us. We're gonna be the future presidents and vice presidents of this company. And we were getting a lecture from the senior vice president. And he said, okay, it's the early 80s and we're now at 30 billion in assets. And the goal by the end of the decade is to get to 50 billion in assets. And that's what you all have to work to. That's the goal. And I remember sitting there thinking, that is not my goal. I'm not saying it's wrong. I'm not saying it's immoral. I'm just saying 
That's not what I want to dedicate my life to. So I quit. I quit my job. I quit my job. I gave up the apartment. I gave my car to my brother. I gave all the suits to Goodwill. And Covenant House had a program where you could live there full time and work with the kids. I didn't even live in an apartment. I lived in a room across from a crack house in a strip club. I got very used to cockroaches and rats in the basement. And I made $12 a week helping homeless teenagers. And I made a one-year commitment and I ended up staying two and a half years. I loved it. I couldn't have been happier. What was amazing is Covenant House was starting to expand at that time and they expanded to Toronto. Then they opened up a Covenant House in Houston and they opened up a Covenant House in Guatemala. And I got elected to be the head of all the volunteers and I got to go back to Guatemala and the Covenant House in Guatemala, not only was it in Guatemala, it was in the very town where I had been four years earlier. And I got to go and see the family again that I had lived with and to thank them. So I felt like it had come full circle, right? You know, from reading that article in the paper, meeting this fellow in Washington, and then the mass, and then the Peace Corps. And now here I was four years later back, you know? And that's still the work that I do today. I've spent 40 years working with homeless and runaway teenagers. And I'm the director in Burlington, Vermont, of Spectrum with the largest program in Vermont for runaway and homeless teens. And this June 20th will be my 41st year doing this work. I look at this whole story. We're talking about a 43-year story. If you put this in a novel, people wouldn't believe it, right? This guy reads the paper. He meets this fellow in Washington. He hears them speak. He goes into the Peace Corps, he ends up in Guatemala, and then he goes... I mean, if you put that in a novel, no one would buy it. It's just too incredible. But it all happened. And I don't know if you believe in karma, if you believe in the universe. I'm a Catholic, I believe in God, and I look at this whole thing and I think, to me, God's hand was at work. That's how I look at it. Other people can look at it other ways, but to me, God's hand led me down a certain path and that's the path I'm still on, and uh, I'm very grateful for it. Sing. Homeless, homeless, moonlight sleeping on a midnight lake. Homeless, homeless, moonlight sleeping on a midnight lake. Homeless, we are homeless, the moonlight sleeping on a midnight lake. We are homeless, 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 homeless,
This is Risk. This is Ladysmith Black Mambazo behind me now. You know, when my sketch comedy group, The State, was on MTV, we had this opportunity for some reason to go into a professional recording studio to record something. I can't remember for the life of me what it was, but the folks there said, oh, we're recording something with Ladysmith Black Mambazo and we just need another half hour, but you guys are welcome to hang out in the booth watching it being recorded. That was just this magical moment of seeing them work and just the remarkable sound that they make with just their voices. This is, of course, from uh, the Paul Simon album, Graceland. And before that, of course, we heard from Mark Redmond. Mark has a book called Called, a memoir. And that story you just heard is a part of it. He has so many extraordinary stories in there. It's at markredmondbooks.com. And before that, we heard a little interstitial by our audio editor, John LaSala, all about puka shells and ass. Folks, if you like good old-fashioned true crime mysteries, if you like stories where you feel like you're a detective finding clues, June's Journey is the name of this new game that you can play on your iPhone or your Android you are uncovering the mystery of June's sister's murder. It's this well-to-do family in the 1920s living in a great Gatsby-like mansion. Each scene uncovers new aspects of the story. Some parts are in New York. Some parts are in Paris. There's all kinds of objects you're finding and trying to assess whether they're meaningful or not. You collect information, filling out your own photo album, and you're keeping track of all the characters. There's romance, there's scandalous family secrets. It feels like a really fun play or movie. And I've only made it through like five scenes, but I am told you could crack the case. All you need is an internet connection and downloading on iOS or Android. So discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Folks, at the top of the show, I mentioned our April 12th show in L.A., our April 21st show in New York, our May 6th show in Portland, and our May 7th show in Seattle. But if you can't make either or any of those shows or miss the live streams, one more way you can support us is by becoming a member at patreon.com slash risk. We very much need the help of our fans in that way. And there's so much bonus content all the time popping up there like this week you'll hear a brand new bonus story by abby crutchfield like dogs when they go to the bathroom they do it away from their bed but he would just like do it on his bed and kick it and be like okay <laughs> and there's over 150 of those bonus stories at patreon.com risk and if you want to make a one-time donation that is at paypal.me slash risk show 
our final story on this week's episode was previously a bonus story on Patreon. Every now and then we like to give you a little taste of stuff we feature over there right here on the podcast. This was recorded years ago when Risk was still at the People's Improv Theater. This is H. Allen Scott, who is a writer and comedian based in Los Angeles. He has a fabulous documentary about his conversion to Judaism called Latter-day Jew. You can find him at hallenscott.com. And here he is now, H. Allen Scott, with a story we call Honestly. Have you ever been in one of those relationships that you just can't get out of? You know what I mean? It's just like you're stuck in it and like you're in this rut and it's kind of killing you in some ways. That's how I think of my cancer. There's absolutely no good way to tell a crowd that you have cancer. Like you can't start in by being like, you know, oh, how's the weather today? It's crazy. I have cancer. It's like, even like in a 1920s newsreel voice, it's still not weird and awkward for people. A couple of months ago, I had a pain in my groin, and they originally thought it was an STD, which I was kind of half hoping for because I could use that street cred, you know. And um, I went to the doctor, and they, it wasn't an STD. They said I had elevated HCG levels, which in women, it means it's a good sign that you're pregnancy. It's usually found in pregnant women, but in men, it means tumors. And... Uh, I was kind of half hoping that I might be a medical miracle and be pregnant. Um, not a possibility. And so, like, it just happened so quickly that this, like, here I am in Hollywood, and I'm in a urologist's office, and it looks like Dr. Seaver's office on growing pains. And it's, like, it's wood-paneled, and my pants are down. And it's, like, this is not what the Hollywood director's couch was supposed to be like for me. And... He has his hand on my testicles, and then the next moment, he's telling me that I need emergency surgery to remove my left testicle, the shower of the two. And I'm blown away by this. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know. I leave his office, and, like, I'm walking through, like, Beverly Hills, and, and I just pass a fat burger, and I just go in, and I start to eat the shit out of a fat burger. And every bite, I'm thinking, like, I have cancer. You know, like this beautiful fat burger and I have cancer and also why am I here I'm a vegetarian like this is like it was it just it was just you're, I had no clue of directions of what was happening to me and and I just kept eating the fat burger and then like recently my doctor told me that there's a mark on my left lung and he doesn't know what it is and the cancer might be spreading we don't know so we're waiting it out one of the great things about cancer is it allows you to be honest with people, you know, and really kind of live in the moment and share what you're feeling. And so, like, you know, for example, sir, I would love to sit on your face. And, um, uh, you know, ma'am, that, that scarf probably should rethink it. Like, those, there's, there, it's just this honesty that just frees you, you know. Um, I, I have to say, with... With cancer, you, there are things that 
before you can start your treatment for cancer that you have to prepare for, you know? And uh, one of the things that I had to do before I started my chemotherapy was, um, they don't tell you this when you get cancer, but sometimes you need to have teeth pulled. I needed to have three teeth pulled before I started chemo because possible infections in those teeth. So they took out three of the teeth. Uh, I also think it was because I wasn't single enough. Um, I needed to really push that forward. The teeth got pulled and like, you know, it was actually, that moment was probably harder than finding out that I had cancer, to be honest with you, because I was at home in St. Louis, where I'm originally from. I kind of went on this, like, cancer road trip before I started chemo to kind of, I needed to see family and friends and sort of deal with things before I really started chemo, and I was healing from the surgery, and I went home, saw my dentist at home in St. Louis, and I'm sitting in the chair, and he tells me I need to lose these teeth, and I'm just like... I've had doctors tell me things lately, like they just want to keep, they rape me of my testicle, and then like another doctor wants to pump me full of all these poisonous drugs, and like now this doctor wants to take three of my teeth? Like when is this going to end? Do I get to keep my dick? Like I don't know what's happening to me. It all just kind of hits me. All of a sudden, I just start crying. I'm just bawling. And then my mom starts crying. And then the nurse starts crying. And there's just like this, everyone's crying in this moment. And like, I'm getting angry because it's my cancer show. Like, you guys, you can cry if you want on your own. But like, this is my deal here. And uh, so the teeth got pulled. And then like, chemo kills your spunk. So I had to freeze my sperm. And um, I, I tasked the job of finding a sperm bank out to my mother because we're not close enough. And I, uh, I, I, well, I actually, I, the, one of the reasons um, I decided to freeze my sperm near my mom's house was because I wanted her to be near the grandkids. Uh, so she found the sperm bank. She's a good finder. And uh, I, the night before I'm supposed to go to the sperm bank, I read the rules um, for jerking off into a cup. There are rules. One of them was that you have to abstain for seven days prior to the deposit. Well, I had had a particularly lonesome morning twice. And I had this freak out thinking like, holy fuck, are my chances of ever having a biological child someday completely fucked because I have no self-control when it comes to on-demand cable. Like, Like, what does this say about me? One, and like, can it get any worse? And then I'm thinking, like, I can't cancel the appointment because then I'm going to have to admit to my mother why I'm canceling the appointment that she made for me and what happened in that room that is now her sewing room but used to be my bedroom. You know, the naughty things that took place. And now it's pastel and it's weird. And, like, who does that in that kind of room? Me, apparently. Cable on demand. And I decide that, like... I'm young enough, my spunk's gonna make it, like it's strong, I only have five days until I start chemo, so I either can do this and just trust my spunk or not, so I decided to, you know, live Oprah's best life and trust my spunk. And so I get to the sperm bank, sperm banks are absolutely nothing like you saw in Will and Grace, like nothing at all. It was in a hospital and the nurse did not wear an appealing outfit, nor did she have an attitude, and she she takes me into this room, and I go into this room, and there's like, I can't, there's no sexy time on my phone because I'm in a hospital so like America's largest 3G failure again and I turn on the television and it's HGTV and CNN that's all I get HGTV and CNN I did what I had to do you know what I mean I did what I had to do I accomplished it but like I also feel like I should write an apology letter to the morning weatherman on um, CNN for what happened between us Uh, but at least I'll have kids one day So chemo started, and chemo is 
exactly as you'd imagine. It's shitty. It's total shit. Like, imagine being dizzy all of the time and always sleepy, but never able to throw up, really, and also never able to sleep for months. That's chemotherapy. It's hard to pinpoint kind of the lowest moment that I had during chemo because every single day was low. Like, every single day was low. There was no good day. You know, you always kind of feel like shit. And, like, it's encompassing your entire life. You're losing your hair. And I remember I I shaved my head in advance because um, that's what the movies told me to do. And I... I, So the, the head was shaved. And then, like, it started kind of growing back. But then I would, like, rub my head and, like, this hair would just come off in places and like there was no I can't really pinpoint the low moment because they're just it all was shitty and when I started chemo I contacted my friend Daryl my friend Daryl he had Ewing sarcoma he had been diagnosed with Ewing sarcoma a couple years prior it's a back cancer um, like a spinal cancer so naturally he was going through chemo he was going to be the person that I was going to reach out to because he could relate to sort of what I was going through and you know he and I we, we were never crazy crazy close but he you know he came to every single show that I would do here in New York and he moved back to Atlanta to be with his family as he went through treatment and he would come to show and like performers if you're a performer you stand on stage and like the audience is very important but so is like that person who has that one great laugh there's that one audience member that has that one great laugh and you focus on that one person and he had that kind of laugh and he and I had a mutual love of Sandra Bullock how many people love Sandra Bullock not many so you and I after the show but so like immediate BFFs you love Sandra Bullock we are tight so When I started chemo, we would text each other and we'd sort of commiserate on what was going on. For example, like the nurses, I mean, if you're a nurse, you're great, anyone in the audience, but like the rest of them, bitches. Um, They, total bitches. Like, my God, they so, my nurse like was sending money to this African man and she would tell me about it every fucking day and it was like, who the fuck? And she looked like Coach Beast with lipstick. Like, it was from Glee. She just, it was so bad. And, like, she would talk. And then this other guy, this gay guy, he would come over and he would just talk to me about gay shit. And I'm just thinking, like, I can't even get my dick up. Why are you talking to me about gay shit? Like, stop. Just go away. And you, you could come on my face right now and I wouldn't even notice. That's how sick I am. Like, just leave me alone. And uh, so we would text each other back and forth. You know, I, it was in that moment that we, like, we both kind of realized like, that desire to murder someone. You know what I mean? Like, now I know what that is. Like, I relate to murderers now because I wanted to pull an Equus moment and stab these nurses in the eyes. Just every single day, just stab them. Because they're stabbing me every day. Why don't I get one day? Um, so I am... It gets to a point where I finish what I hope, hope, hope will be my last cycle of chemotherapy. And uh, I'm kind of happy, but I'm sick, so I'm not too happy. And uh, I, I learned that it will also be Daryl's um, last part of chemotherapy as well uh, from a Facebook status update. And it's the Facebook status update says that the doctors are releasing him to home because there's nothing more they can do for him. It's on a Facebook update, and it's like, that's beautiful in a way, because he's okay, he's comfortable, and he's happy, and he's, he's being honest. He's being so beautifully honest about what's happening to him, and I am, I'm trying to understand sort of what this means, and then a couple of weeks later, he dies, 
And it's like, that's what this is about. That's how this works. And I, I, I don't know how to process something like that because you talk to someone who's going through the exact same thing as you and you're talking about stabbing nurses in their eyes and you're loving Sandra Bullock and you're talking about people coming on your face and then you die. And what does that mean? <laughs> like, what does any of that mean? Why was I meant to talk to this man? Why was I meant to meet this man? And w selfishly, what does this mean for me? Like, why am I here and he's not? And why was he able to be so beautifully honest and I am left to sort of tweet about it? When you have cancer, you think about death a lot. You know what I mean? You think about sort of what would happen if you die. There's like, for example, there's a saying, you could get hit by a bus at any time, right? We all know rationally that we could die at any single moment and whatever, it could happen. You could drop dead. It's a saying, the bus could hit you and you could drop dead. But like, for y'all, watch where you're going, you know? <laughs> Avoid buses. But like, for me, I have this mark on my left lung and like Derek, we were talking about coming on someone's faces and then now he's dead and it's like, what does that mean? And it could happen, it could happen and you feel it and you feel it really low and you, you wonder who's gonna remember me, what's going to happen to me, who's gonna erase my browser history? <laughs> um, the important questions in life, really. And, and, and then you realize that it goes back to that moment of honesty, you know what I mean? And that's what really all of it's about. Like, even I don't know what is going to happen to me, and that is a shitty feeling, and it's raw, and it's real, and whatever. It's being honest. But, like, that's what it's all about. You know, it's about telling a man that you want to kiss him or that you're comfortable and happy in your last moments on a Facebook status update. And it's about being honest. And it's in those interactions, in the beginnings with people where you're most honest that life is about, really. And I love that I'm able to be here and be honest right now because I'm sad a lot and I'm happy a lot and I'm scared a lot and I love a lot. I'm H. Allen Scott. Thanks so much. is all for this week's episode folks this is ingrid michelson behind me now and we just heard from h allen scott who is in great health nowadays and don't forget to check out his stuff at hallenscott.com 
Folks, don't forget to check out thestorystudio.org. That's where you'll find so many opportunities for storytelling training. Online workshops, you can do one-on-one training with some of our instructors. We also do custom-tailored corporate workshops. There's storytelling for business, storytelling for performance, storytelling for personal growth, All of that can be found at thestorystudio.org. You can also hire me for one-on-one training over at kevinallison.com. And don't forget to follow us on our socials on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook. We're at Risk Show. You can join the Risk Podcast Fans Discussion Group on Facebook or discuss the stories over on Reddit. Our subreddit is Risk Podcast. And my socials are on Twitter and Instagram at the Kevin Allison. Oh, and you can also hire me for making a quick little video message to say happy birthday or whatever. Give a little pep talk, whatever it might be. That is at cameo.com slash the Kevin Allison. Folks, Today's the day. Take a risk. I just want to be okay, be okay, be okay. I just want to be okay today. I just want to be okay, be okay, be okay. I just want to be okay today. I just want to feel the day, feel the day, feel the day. I just want to feel something Pikachu. <laughs> Pikachu.